microcap ecosystem is an incredible place, whether you join the site or not. I don't care. I just want more people to know that it exists. It's a amazing place for the smallest student investor to get to have an advantage for once, uh, because it should be everybody's goal that you want to invest where you don't want to invest where the institutions are. You want to invest where they're going to go. My guest today is Ian Castle. Ian is the founder of the Microcap Club, an exclusive forum for experienced microcap investors focused on companies with market caps less than $300 million. Investing gurus Warren Buffett and Peter Lynch launched their careers investing in microcaps. Microcap companies are the smallest public companies that exist, representing close to half of all public companies in North America. Companies such as Berkshire Hathaway, Walmart, and Netflix started as microcaps. Investors that were able to identify these companies early on, and many others like them, would have been able to see 20 times, 50 times, and in some cases, 100 times their money by investing in these stocks. Ian is also Chief Investment Officer of Intelligent Fanatics Capital Management, a money management firm that invests in microcap stocks. I recently sat down with Ian to talk about how he goes about finding quality companies to invest in. And we also talked about how the inefficiencies that attracted Buffett and Lynch are still alive and well today. Okay, Ian, thanks so much for being on the show. I greatly appreciate it. And I've been looking forward to it since, uh, really, since I've been a subscriber close to a year ago to your, your website. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. All right, before we begin, what the heck is a microcap? Explain that to me as simply as possible. Uh, a microcap company is are the smallest public companies in the world. You know, everybody's heard of Google, everybody's heard of Facebook, everybody's heard of Netflix. Well, half of all publicly traded companies are microcap companies, as defined as having a market capitalization less than three hundred million. You know, and so just to give you an example here in North America, that's either U.S. and Canada, um, there's roughly 10,000 microcap companies and right. most of these companies no one's ever heard of. And why is that? Why don't, why don't people hear of them? Well, they're too small. They're too illiquid for any of the large brokerage firms to bother having research coverage on. And in fact, that's, that's sort of the opportunity for, for the retail investors. The fact that, you know, this is an area of the market that has, that they really have a structural advantage as a small astute investor because larger pools of capital, mainly institutional capital, can't invest in these companies until they grow up and get larger and more liquid. And so they're kind of on the outside of the city looking in where the small investor actually has the advantage. So it has very few eyes looking at it simply because Wall Street can't be looking at these. They're just too small. $300 million is not even a rounding error for most hedge funds. And uh, exactly. they're just sitting there. Many of them, I think you mentioned, are mispriced. They're not priced properly. Right. No, it, exactly. I mean, some of these... You know, if we're looking at the microcap ecosystem, let's say there's 20,000 public companies in North America. Like I said, around half of them are micro or, or microcaps, so sub 300 million. You know, and there's, you know, like I said, still 10,000 half the marketplace. You know, I would say if we were dividing up then that microcap ecosystem, sub 300 million. When you're looking at 200 to 300 million market cap, you do see some institutions get involved at that level. You know, and that's when you start seeing research coverage, uh, brokers following it, they become more known, they're more liquid, and it's quite honestly, it's a more efficient market. 
when you go smaller, say sub 200 million, 100 million, you know, that's where you're getting into an arena where most of the investors that own these securities or, or these companies are retail investors. So, and there's very little institutional ownership, no research coverage. And because of the fact there's no research coverage, if you're an investor in this area, you have to be doing the research. You have to be doing the primary research into these companies because there's nobody else to lean on. So this is like, you know, when you read about Buffett back 50, 60 years ago, when he was going around buying shares of illiquid companies from farmers or, uh, you know, information, especially financial information was disseminated at a snail's pace. It was by mail and you had to go filings. There was a lot of mispriced uh, opportunities in the marketplace. So basically, microcaps is what those kind of markets that we're seeing, that we saw 50, 60 years ago, we're seeing them today? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people don't realize it, you know, because a lot of people look at microcap, you know, by the derogatory term penny stock. You know, many people just don't get a, um, you know, it's just a negative term, quite honestly. But these are really microcaps. But a lot of people don't realize that, you know, folks like you said, like Warren Buffett, Peter Lynch, Joel Greenblatt, they all started their careers as microcap investors. You know, many of the world's greatest companies started as microcaps. Even Berkshire Hathaway, when Buffett took it over in the 60s, was a, a, was a microcap company on an inflation-adjusted basis. You know, Amgen, Intuitive Surgical, you know, most of the world's best-performing stocks originate out of the microcap ecosystem. Walmart, Netflix, Monster Beverage, all these companies that we know about today. And yet, a lot of people like to put this negative broad brush over the ecosystem of microcap. And yet, the best investors started here. Some of the best companies started here. This has been a vetted investment class. And it's quite honestly, it's one that will remain structurally inefficient for probably decades to come, just like it has been for, for decades in the past. And it's it's not really me just saying it. There's been some you know white papers written on it. In fact, um, a good friend of mine looked at all the CSRB data going back to 1926. And if you looked at all of the publicly traded companies since 1926 and divided up by market cap, so size, the smallest decile, so sub 115 million market cap, outperformed all other deciles since 1926. And I believe the compounded growth rate in that smallest decile was you know, 17.5% compounded versus the next best, which was the next largest, which was 12 and a half. So 17.5 versus 12.5. I mean, that's a huge difference over, you know, since 1926. And, you know, to take it a step further, a Yale finance professor, his name's Roger Ibbotson. Um, he also runs Zebra Capital, I believe. He did a white paper looking at illiquidity as a factor when it comes to outperformance. And he looked at companies, all the companies that are Republic from 1971. Um, and I believe the last, uh, the last time his research was updated was 2017, and he looked at illiquidity. And believe it or not, illiquidity was a big driver of outperformance. You know, so he had this matrix in his white paper where it showed illiquidity, and then it showed you know micro cap, small cap, mid cap, large cap, and across all of those market cap spectrums, the best performing area was the the illiquid or the least liquid component. So since 1971. The highest returns were illiquid microcap companies. So, Ian, you're telling me that Berkshire Hathaway, Amgen, uh, Netflix, I was reading in your book, uh, were all once what we would call today penny stocks or microcaps? Yes, many, many of them, all of those were microcap companies. You know, some of them actually IPO'd as small 
microcap companies. And other ones, they, they may have IPO'd or went public as a larger company or a small cap, you know, ended up kind of going down and becoming a micro cap. And then, you know, like just like a phoenix rises from the ashes became a larger cap or mega cap. But, you know, most of the best performing stocks ever, you know, originated or at least were at one time a micro cap company. So this is a way for investors, if they know what they're doing, to find the next Berkshire Hathaway, the next Netflix, the next Amgen while it's still trading at a very, very low uh, market cap that doesn't have much institutional representation. Uh, analysts aren't even looking at it. It's illiquid, and you could just buy these things, forget them, and just grow with them and make huge returns. Is that more or less right? Well, I wouldn't say it's a buy and forget or a coffee can type portfolio. I mean, the, all of these companies are small emerging companies uh, in many in many regards and a lot of them they evolve in not so good ways you know and I'll give you a couple of examples you know and, and we might get on to, into this in a little bit but I'm founder of a site called microcapclub.com and there we have some of the best microcap investors from around the world about 250 folks from around the world and there some of them are institutions and some of them are retail investors but we see a lot of the best ideas that are small on Microcap Club. And since the club was founded in 2011, uh, those members have profiled around 750 microcap companies. And, you know, really, that's a lot of companies. And when we look at some of the, the, the outperformers, I believe we've had, I don't know, 22, 23, 24 of those companies that have gone on to be, you know, 10x uh, stocks, so 1,000% returns or more, which is a good number. But that's, you know, 22 out of 750. Another interesting statistic is, you know, I think we have around 230, 240 of those 750 um, have doubled or more since they were profiled. You know, which again, you know, that's a, a nice chunk of that 750. Uh, but if we were to look at just the law of large numbers of, of companies that were profiled by fairly experienced microcap investors, probably half of them are up over time and half of them are down. So it's still important that you pick the right companies. And a lot of times these are small emerging companies, so they might do really well with one or two products because they're small, you know, but they have to evolve as a, as a company and as a business to be able to, you know, really be something bigger. And some of them do, and, but a lot of them don't. So it's not as easy as just kind of picking 15 of these things and then forgetting about them. In fact, that's probably a good way to go broke <laughs> in this strategy. Uh, you really do need to keep your pulse on what you own. You need to, you need to know what you own. And that's really the, the secret to microcap investing is really to know your positions better than most, really understand these microcap companies. And the cool thing about microcaps is these are, these are small businesses. You know, you don't have to look, you don't have to analyze like you would General Electric that has 85 different subsidiaries in all parts of the world. You know, these are rather simple businesses. You know, they're easier to understand. You know, it's easier to find what the levers are with the businesses. Um, and so, uh, so I, I think it's an incredible place to invest, especially for investors that know how to do due diligence, know how to read financial statements, you know, and probably the area that most investors go astray investing in this space is investing in the story stocks, investing in the companies that aren't profitable, that actually aren't real businesses. That's where people tend to lose a lot of money really quick, you know? And if we're looking at the metrics across microcaps in North America, out of 10,000 microcaps, about 15% of them are profitable. 
And so my kind of best advice to anybody new looking into the space is focus on that 15% that so, are profitable, that are actually real businesses. Gotcha. So if you have a small business, let's look at it not as a stock. Look at it as we're buying a business because in many cases, these are really mm-hmm. small. And if we take that mindset, it changes the game. So since we're passive investors, what would you say is the most important thing when I'm looking at a business, especially a microcap, to not be part of those 700 that lose money, but those that do 10x, 20x, or 100x? I would say the most important thing is revenue growth and earnings per share growth. You know, that's the most important thing. And then right alongside that, you know, doing research into the founder, the CEO, the management team of that business. Okay, so let me me ask a question. Let me interrupt you a second. You wrote these books, Intelligent Fanatics. I read both of them, Standing on the Shoulders of Giants, and the other one was How Great Leaders Build Sustainable Businesses. And all you really do here, which I found so fascinating, you and your uh, uh, co-author have just dissected companies and founders, I think eight or ten in each book or so, so I got a really well-rounded way of how uh, great companies started from leaders with vision, right? And you call them intelligent fanatics because it's the CEO, the founder, that made the business in a pretty, many cases, mundane industry. Mm-hmm. No, that's correct. I mean, so the, those two books came about because one of our members on Microcap Club, Sean Eddings, reached out to me and he started writing uh, a chapter about one of them in the first book already. And he reached out to me and we connected on it. And the term intelligent fanatics was derived uh, from Charlie Munger. He used it, the term in one of his speeches. And it really is the definition of intelligent fanatic is somebody that built a business from nothing up to something of significance, you know, and usually they ended up dominating their niche, their geography, maybe even their industry, and not only dominating it over a year or two, but we're talking about dominating it for decades, you know, and so it just caused the question, how did they build this business in the first place? And then secondarily, how did they, you know, sustain that dominance over a longer period of time? And for me as a microcap investor, you know, if you want to find great companies early, you need to find great leaders early. And so I was interested in, in kind of fine tuning my qualitative lens for finding leadership. And, you know, that's really what kind of drew me to, to co-authoring both those books with Sean and just uncovering some simple lessons kind of in all the stories that we tell over those two books. Uh, it's really helped me in my investing. And believe it, or, believe it or not, some of the main takeaways from it and kind of getting back to microcaps is a lot of these really small microcap companies, some of them are just hustles, you know, if I want to call them that, you know, it's one or two people and they're just hustling, you know, and you can build a business from zero to 10 or $15 million a year revenues if it's just a hustle. You know, the, but the problem with that is, you know, they're their own ceiling. You know, it's never going to be a $50 million business, $100 million or more business. And I run into those situations quite a bit when analyzing microcap companies. Like, I want to find people that can build a good team around them, that can form that hustle into an actual real business, scalable business. And that's really what I'm trying to find as a microcap investor is something that that has the processes, has the talent, has the product offering that can scale. Right. One, one in your book, one of the most fascinating CEOs that I loved reading about, CEOs and founders, was Saul Price. Saul Price uh, w- was the mentor to Sam Walton, Walmart, to Jim Singel of Costco. And I'm missing someone else. 
some uh, was there a third company? Bertie Marcus. Bertie Marcus Home of Home Depot. Depot, right. So this one man, Saul Price, came up with a new concept in retailing. Just tell me some thoughts on that. Just delve into that because that, if you could find the next Saul Price in these microcaps, you hit a grand slam. Yeah, and you you wish there was a thousand souls out there to invest in, but you know, you it, it but it only takes one. If you can just find right. one that is really special, like him, or even somebody that's quite honestly half as good as he was in the microcap arena, you know, you would do really really well. Uh, and and that's one of the interesting things with with Saul was he was continuing mentoring others. You know, you had people like Sam Walton reaching out to him, wanting to learn from him, and he's you know they're kind of competitors. You know, and they would still, you know, talk to each other. He would still help people. And so he had this legion of fans that ultimately these other retailers that built huge companies, whether it was Home Depot or Costco, that just, you know, idolized him that built, you know, $10 billion companies alongside, you know, him. And he, he, um, he started a company called Fed, uh, FedSmart and it did really well. And then I believe Costco ended up acquiring his interest in that. And that's kind of how it evolved. But he's he's a great example. He was one of my favorite intelligent fanatics as well, um, just because his ability just to compound capital for his shareholders over, you know, 40, 50 years. And, and this impressive. is a, it's, it's not in high tech. It's not in the Internet. It's not in search. It was in retailing. Retailers, every day they open their store, all their trade secrets are out on the floor. There's no nothing secretive about retail. Mm-hmm. It's all yeah. they're exposed. And Sal Price was able to do it. And not only that, but but mentor people who went on to become giants and totally recreate the retailing landscape. Well, and, it, and it's interesting when you and you can kind of trace a lot of things back to Seoul. You know whether it. You know, and really, he's one of the originators of wanting to sell things as cheap as possible to the consumer. You know, he wanted to create that flywheel of just heavy volume at a low margin, you know, and then Walmart picked up on that. Jeff Bezos picked up on that then online because people say, well, Jeff Bezos is basically Sam Walton just taken online, you know, and Sam Walton was taking much of sole prices, you know, that vision up to another level. So it's interesting as you go back through the generations, you can see you can kind of trace things back to sole price in a lot of ways and across different industries. Yeah, it's just fascinating when you have a leader or as, you have, as Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's partner put it, intelligent fanatics, people with a vision who want to drive the business. I remember uh, Buffett said that Bill Gates would have been successful in, in owning hot dog stands. He would have been number one in the world. It's that vision. It's that ability to communicate that to your people, solve a problem and continue to create a culture that just grows and grows and grows. Yeah. And, you know, and, but investing is still hard. I mean, you, you brought up Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, you know, they've been friends since like the mid nineties and Buffett's never owned Microsoft this whole time. You know, <laughs> it's been an incredible investment. So it's you, even, even when it's obvious, it's still hard to pull the trigger on some of these things as investments. Yeah. So I want to get to another point of this, which, which uh, uh, the importance of finding a great leader, because I want to focus on that because I think for the average investor and in terms of my approach also, that I take with uh, Alpha Investor, which is my newsletter. The main, one of the main things I look at is the CEO. Because if you could find a Michael Jordan or uh, LeBron James and just basically ride on their coattails, uh, you, you, you already solved most of the problems of most businesses. So I agree 100% with you. If you find a business that's making money and not losing money or has no, has no revenue earnings, yeah, you, you're, at, 
You take 100 stocks, you're down to 15 or so. I think you said around 15% of them. And then you find and you wait for that next Warren Buffett or that next Saul Price or that next Sam Walton or that next Jeff Bezos and just latch onto their coattails. It, it, it's not complicated, but it takes a lot of patience and, as you mentioned, a lot of hard work in researching and figuring this stuff out, no? Yeah, and, and a lot of it's somewhat commonsensical. You know, especially when you're looking at these smaller companies, you want to see a CEO that has skin in the game, that owns a nice piece of the company, uh, that he's motivated by his equity position, not from a high salary, you know, or stock options or things like that. And one of the big things that I look for, and it's actually probably the main area that my investing evolved by writing those two books was, do they put great people around them? You know, they don't, they want to, they want to build a sustainable company that's around 50 years past when they die, you know? And so they want to get the best talent they can find around them. They don't need to be the smartest person in the room. They just want to have work for them, the smartest people in that room. Right. And you know what? And so I, yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just sorry to interrupt you, but Andrew Carnegie, richest man in the world at the time in the early 1900s worth, I don't know, it, you know, inflation adjusted hundreds of billions of dollars. He never owned a hundred percent of any of his businesses which is fascinating. He always found people smarter than him, invested alongside them, and let them do their work. And by the time he was 40, he just stayed in New York, rode, had this magical way of looking at the world and making this kind of peace type of campaign throughout the world that was just destroyed in World War I. But he sat back and just reaped the rewards of investing in smart people. Mm -hmm. No, exactly. And a lot of their processes are set up just to cultivate talent, you know, promote from within, you know, so if you start there, you know that you're not going to have a ceiling if you continue to perform. Right. You know, so it's creating those opportunities. Right. So to me, you know, it, it, so many people look at investing and they get so uh, overwhelmed by looking at numbers and looking at spreadsheets. But business boils down to making things and selling things, treating your customer right, taking care of your people, getting out there with a message, getting your customer engaged and doing the right thing. Nothing more complicated than that. That's what I think every business boils down to. It doesn't boil down to a whole bunch of spreadsheets and a whole bunch of matrices and consultants and studies and this. It's about doing simple things right more frequently than the next guy. And when you look at the microcap space, and I totally agree because I've, full disclosure, I've been a member for a while. A member not, I don't contribute because uh, to contribute, by the way, you have to pass a pretty strict criteria of being approved by you folks. So someone has to put in a, a stock pitch and be approved that you know what you're talking about. And I think you only have what? How many members? Of yeah, the- I mean, it's, yeah, to be to be a member, it doesn't cost any money. You just have to prove your worth by submitting uh, an application, and an application is a two to three page investment thesis on your favorite microcap stock. And yeah. um, every month, our membership then votes on all of the applications we have in the preceding month. And you know, normally we have call it 20 applications a month, people trying to get in. And I would say maybe two to four end up ultimately getting in per month. But then you have a whole side of membership, which is just voyeurs like me who just pay the money and just watch what all you brainiacs do and find stocks, right? Yeah, and and then we have, yeah, then we have the subscriber. It's for people that don't have the time or ability. You know, you just pay $500 and just view kind of what our conversations are internally. You know, I've always found that cloning for me, I've never, I don't, I don't think I've come up with an original thought my whole business career. I've just watched what other people do 
and figure it out and say, okay, you have a whole bunch of smart guys. They came up with this. I could use a little part of my brain power to just sift through that and find someone who's the best of the best. And uh, to me, and, and I just, another thing I don't want to tell investors um, who are listening, you don't have to be original. You don't have to, you don't have to come up and, and create the next X, Y, or Z or find the person who's creating that. Really what you need to do is just keep it as simple as possible and clone ideas. If you see great investors investing in one thing, if you see a great CEO jumping to a new company, it's just as simple as that, is following great CEOs into great businesses. I think Buffett said about uh, Tom Murphy that uh, no matter which business this guy was in, Cap Cities, he would have invested in regardless just by following great leaders. You find the same thing in microcaps? No, I, I do. I mean, I mean that's why that's why really microcap club was created. Like, I don't need to find these ideas. I can you know utilize 250 other people you know to to see what they liked and why. And we all invest differently. You know, there's people that just invest in deep value stocks. There's people that invest in growth stocks. People that invest in mining. People that hate mining. People that hate biotech. Love biotech. We have all of that on microcap club. So there's you know every kind of niche of investing that is present in larger cap is actually still present down in these smaller companies, it's just that the businesses are just smaller. What I found out, well. yeah, what I found out by being a member and looking at some of these small stocks, and I just want to just mention that some of these companies had market caps of 50 million, five zero, five zero, which is I, not even a rounding error in some research and development of a tech company. Just as it, it, I think CEOs get paid more than that. But the whole company's worth 50 million, and then you look at it, and the balance sheet was strong. The CEO had a fantastic track record. Earnings were increasing. Revenue was increasing. Their customer base was increasing. Everything was working, yet the stock was selling at 50 or 60%, sometimes less than the cash in the bank. Yeah. I mean, you find some really bizarre situations, and sometimes it's just because nobody really knows about them or nobody's really done the work to know about them. You know, <laughs> you know, it's really a combination of those two things. And, you know, one, one of the, one of the little qualitative tricks that I use to find some good companies is, you know, I love to see uh, management teams or a CEO that has had previous success. And, you know, I love it when I see a CEO that comes into a new situation then and, and he funds the company himself with his personal balance sheet because he made 20, 50, a hundred million in an exit somewhere else. And you see them just kind of funding their vision for the future. And then they're not influenced by Wall Street or bankers or brokers trying to raise them capital or distract them. Like they can do it. They can fund their vision themselves, you know, and, and you find situations like that, you know, not very many, but you might find one or two a year where you kind of find that qualitative kind of attribute that kind of gets you to sit up a little straighter in the chair, you know, and dig in a little bit. Um, you know, those are the ones that I found that by and far, you know, work out pretty well in the end. Yeah. And the thing about it is, is that you don't need a hundred of them. You need one, you say one or two a year. I'm talking one or two every three years because you have mm -hmm. three or four of the, you know, think about this, uh, um, that, uh, you met Buffett in 1950s in Omaha, you hit the lotto, right? You hit the lottery, you gave him $10,000 worth 300 plus million today. And you don't have to do anything for that. Just finding him and investing with him, not even understanding what he did. Because I remember uh, Don Keogh, who lived across the street from him, who later became uh, uh, chairman of, of Coke, Coca didn't invest with Buffett. He said the guy works at, out of his house, out of his bedroom with socks, and he's a nice guy and all, but I'm not investing with this guy. And biggest mistake and regret of his life. So once you find that great CEO and just latch on to them, uh, it, 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 
you would just basically ride that for as long as you can, hopefully for decades. But the point that I just want to make, and I'm, I'm sure you have so many examples of this, is that you don't need tons of them. You need a few. Because if you find those that do the 10x, 50x, and yep, even 100x, you're pretty much set. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's microcap is a game of slugging percentage, not batting average. So even somebody like me that's pretty well versed in this space, when I look at my own portfolio, and I'm a rather concentrated investor, you know, so I'm in a dozen companies, you know, I know I'm going to be wrong on four or five of these things. You know, they, I start, I start buying them when I'm seeing the signs of greatness, you know, a couple of the, some of those attributes I just outlined before, you know, and then I watch them evolve. And if they evolve in good ways, I add to them, you know, and if they evolve in bad ways, I take them back off and I find something else. Um, but it's really trying to find those three or four out of call it a dozen or whatever it would be that end up being, you know, big winners and big winner could be, you know, doubling or tripling or five Xing or 10 Xing. Uh, but you're always going to have some losers. You're not going to be right all the time. And it's important not to beat yourself up over that because yeah. nobody's perfect. Yeah, I have a friend of mine uh, who's in private equity. And he says, our strike, we strike out a lot. But when we, we don't hit home runs when we hit them, we hit grand slams. So we might have 10 companies. Eight of them might strike out. But those two that do hit it are grand slams. They make up for those eight and then some. It seems to me microcap is the same way because the upside is enormous when you do hit it yeah it's it's similar they call it power laws it's kind of similar power laws as you find um maybe not quite as much not, not quite as significant as called venture capital where you know you're looking to hit it with two out of 20 or two out of 30 you know this might be you know hopefully you could hit it with you know two or three out of 10 or a dozen you know but those same power laws are present you know down here in public small companies as there are and there's other small emerging markets you know the interesting thing about that too is you know, when you're looking at small private equity, venture capital, or microcap, we're all emerged, we're all investing in small emerging companies. You know, everybody hears about private equity. Everybody hears about um, venture capital. They're always all over the news. Everybody wants to be the next Andreessen Horowitz. You know, but you very rarely hear anything positive or anything about small microcap companies. You know, and the irony there is, it's because out of those three buckets, microcap is the only place where the small astute investor actually has the advantage. So what do you think that you know, is? Why don't you hear more about that? You know, there's other two areas I mentioned, you know, there's still even in, you know, small, small private equity, call it small venture capital or even just venture capital in general, you know, it's still rather institutionalized. Those best dealers are going to those larger institutional venture capital firms. You know, you just don't have that element down here in small micro caps. It's almost, it's kind of bizarre, but a lot of people almost see illiquidity more risky than no liquidity. You know, we at least have some liquidity as small public companies. And yet, you know, we're kind of seen as this very risky investment class. You know, I would say there's probably a lot more failure in venture capital than there is in small microcaps. Why do you, th why do you, you think know? that is? I don't know why there's that misperception. You know, it's, it's always bothered me, to be honest with you. It's kind of one of the things that uh, it's the reason why I'm so active on social media, just about the space in general, is because it just bothers me. You know, one you know, thing I could, because think... you mentioned to people about microcaps, and the first thing, if you explain what it is, the small caps that sell, the stock sell for a dollar or 50 cents or $3, and they're, you know, under 100 million. First thing most people come is penny stocks. Penny stocks, they're scams. Mm -hmm. 
which many of them are. Why, why is that? Why is that perception so overblown, overblown into the whole entire uh, asset class? Well, I think for two reasons. I think number one reason, quite honestly, is probably the first entree somebody gets to microcaps is from this glossy hard mailer you get in your mailbox you know, once or twice a year that says buy XYZ, it's the next Amazon. And it's some $2 million promotion that a company paid to get that with the word out on their company. And uh, over a five-year period, I collected all those that I got in my mailbox. I think I got 43 of them. And 99% of them went to zero. You know, and so you just think about all the people that also got something like that. They're, you know, they might just throw a little bit of money at it. They see it go down to zero. You know, they don't want anything to do with this space anymore. Um, you know, so I think that's number one. Number two is I don't think there's really any, you know, large investor that's kind of holding the flag for the microcap ecosystem. Yes, Buffett, Greenblatt, Lynch started here, but they grew out of the space. I mean, it's a space that you're constantly losing your best investors because they evolve up and out, you know, because, you know, it, they can invest here if they're managing, you know, zero to 20 million, but they can't be investing a billion dollars and still investing in these small companies. And so there's no one kind of left to say, this is a great space anymore. You know, so you're, it's kind of like a college football team or something. You're constantly losing your best players. Yeah. But that, that's a tremendous advantage for people like yourself who it know is. what you're doing. Cause the, you you never want to be playing poker against professionals or experts you want to play against a marketplace that doesn't have your smarts because if as buffett says if after a little while you don't know who the patsy is in the poker game you're it so in most of the exactly most of the invest most investing you're the patsy you don't have as much information you don't have as much research as a jp morgan or even morningstar argus or any of these research firms so you're you're you don't have that information edge but microcaps is a place where you can have that edge and it's not crowded. Uh, exactly. I mean, and that's, you, you nailed it on the head. I mean, that's, it's an opportunity where you can still find real growing profitable businesses. They're not going to be likely the ones that you would get in your mailbox <laughs> in a glossy pr promotion. You're going to yeah, yeah, go find yeah, them. Because these companies would yep. never, never exactly. spend a million dollars on promoting their stock. They take that million dollars and use it to expand their business. Exactly. Yep. So you could write off yep. anything that you get glossy, uh, glossy mailers or phone calls or emails or anything to that effect, because if a company has to go out of their way to pitch themselves and it's all about the stock price, you want to hold on to your wallet and run. Yeah. In fact, a lot of times what you find is some of the best operators that I've invested in, I mean, quite honestly, the investors aren't number one, you know, their customers are number one. And their employees are probably number one as well. And I don't know where investors are, but it's probably down the list, you know, after stakeholders, after suppliers, you know, they're down further. And that's what you want to see as an investor. You want to see a business and a, and a leadership team where it's employees and it's customers love the company. You know, you know that's really the part of due diligence that's most important. I saw recently, maybe the last couple of days on your site about one company that everyone was hot and heavy on. I forgot the name of it. You probably know it. Hot and heavy. And then someone mentioned that they just hired an investor relations firm and spent money to pump up the price of the stock. And then everyone turned real sour about that. Does that sound familiar to you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you see that 
You know, believe it or not, you saw that we would see that a lot more often, even five, six years ago. You see less and less of that because it has such a negative, leaves such a negative taste in the mouths of experienced investors in this space. Um, and I don't want to say all investor relations is bad. I mean, I, I actually don't mind it if a company has an investor relations firm because they need they need just help telling the story or or creating an investor presentation and things like that. I get that. It's really just kind of those really there's there's areas that aren't tasteful such as those hard mailers i talked to you about or sending out email blasts and things like that that you know just good companies don't do right so right off the bat so let's go through this again stay away from the penny stock mailers stay away from companies that are losing money and you just threw out 90% of a lot of you just you narrowed down 100 to about 10 to 15 Right off the yeah. bat. And then if you go with those 15 and you just find businesses that you could understand run by CEOs, founders that have vision, that have skin in the game, you, that you like this story, you have a very good chance of doing well. Yeah, yeah exactly. And you're still not going to be right all the time. But, you know, I think over time and as you grow as an investor, you, you know, kind of a little bit of the, the little things to look for here and there, you're you'll get better and better the more you do it. I mean, the, my best advice to people that are new in the space, like I said before, you know, stay away from the unprofitable companies, look for the leadership teams that have skin in the game that that have really great backgrounds, look for the businesses that, you know, can sustain a double digit growth rate and remain profitable, you know, over the foreseeable future. Um, and, you know, you'll do pretty well investing in a basket of companies that, that fit that. Right. So I never looked in this space, never. And this is only my personal account for a very small amount of money, money that I could definitely afford to lose and it won't upset me the least. Uh, it's really an asymmetrical bet. Most I lose is X, but the most I can make is X times 100, hopefully. And I found one company on your site that management was AAA. These people were in the business for years. They had experience in the business. Number two, they were in the pharmaceutical business, so they had a product that is already out there and approved and sold by another company, and all they do is sit back and collect the royalties. Mm -hmm. So right off the bat, I have a profitable company, smart management, and cash flow coming in. So now the whole thing is buying when the price was right, and I saw that the price had a big downturn just a few days or weeks ago. I don't remember exactly when I bought it. And I said, okay, everything lined up there, and I just increased my chances of success by tenfold from where it was a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, a lot. Of, that's the other funny thing. Even with the really good businesses, these are still volatile securities and stocks. You know, you'll have a day where somebody just decides to put in a market order and sell a chunk of stock, and it's down twenty percent for no reason. Well, that's great. So that, that's kinda, that's a great advantage to a, someone who knows. It's an opportunity. Yeah. Yep. And you, and you just have to be aware and have be opportunistic and and be watching the companies that you like or own or want to own for those periods of time when the volatility gives you an opportunity. Right. So. Could you just talk about one stock, just one company, and I even call it a stock, one company that you have no position in that seems to come up a lot on the um, on, on your um, on your site that people are hot and heavy at for all the good reasons? Well, I'll and this is this isn't a recommendation, but this is this is the number one performing stock on Microcap Club when it was profiled, I believe back in 2013. And this is not a recommendation; I'm just giving you an example of a success story. Um, it's a company called Expel, I'm sorry, XPEL, and it's a company that was profiled at 36 cents per share, and they make paint protection film 
to protect cars, you know, from scratches, dings, things of that nature. And they build up their brand in very high-end cars, you know, Ferraris, Porsches. They would go to all of those club meetings and they build up a, a good business. You know, back then it was probably a 15, 16 million dollar year revenue business. And they they sell their film to dealers and the dealers then put that film on cars. So they have a lot of dealers throughout the world. Anyway, that company grew from that size to one of, you know, 150, 200 million almost of revenue now. It's working its way up to that. And that stock went from 36 cents to $60. That's oh. six zero uh, in, I think, five years, you know, which is pretty incredible. You know, oh. and that's not some tech-heavy play. You're talking about selling paint protection film on cars, you know, and that was... Uh, I don't know what type of bagger that is. What's 36 cents to, I don't know. It's a lot, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so that's one of the big winners that we've had. And obviously there's plenty of losers that I could also discuss, but that one was a company that just had that intelligent fanatic leader that owned a big chunk of the company, had great people around him, just kept on executing and, uh, and didn't dilute shareholders along the way. I mean, he, he didn't do any toxic finances to try to fund the company. He just grinded it out and built an amazing business. Yep. But it's still, it's still a small cap. It's not even, it's not like it's a large cap or anything like that. It's still relatively small, you know, from all, any other public company that's out there. But that's one of the, that's, that's our biggest success on MicroCap Club. So I thought I'd, I'd bring that one up. And you, you had some of the members point, uh, some, a member brought that up as a, as an investment opportunity, a, a member yeah, found somebody, it? One of our members profiled it at 36 cents per share. How'd they find it? Uh, they found it just because they were, that is Paul Andriola, I believe, that profiled that company. He's a, he's a rather prolific, very good uh, investor in Canadian microcap companies. He's, he mainly invests in Canada microcaps. And uh, he was just aware of looking at companies and he was looking at things that were growing, that were profitable, that had insider ownership. Mm -hmm. And he, talked to management, liked what he heard, and he profiled it in microcap club. That's what I found another thing is pretty amazing. With microcaps, you really can get management on the phone. That's something hedge funds and institutional investors get access to in multi-billion dollar companies, which the average person would never be able to speak with the CFO or the CEO. But with microcaps, he's usually the same guy who's also, you know, sweeping the floor. So when you do call up with a question, many times you'll get that guy on the phone. Yeah, I mean, it's the thing that drew me to the space originally 20 years ago was the ability to actually be able to talk to the people running the company. It's like you could, I couldn't do that with, you know, Steve Jobs back in the day, you know, or, or any large company. But a lot of these microcap companies, they're happy to talk to somebody yeah. <laughs> because they're not used to. You know, there was a company I invested in in the news in our newsletter about 10 or 12 years ago. I called up and I knew we had a winner because it, they had an answering machine for their, for their investor relations department. You called up and they just said, we'll get back to you. And I don't know if they, I, I read the 10K, I read the annual report. There was a small question I had. I get a call back around three or four days later. This is, I think, in 2010 or maybe a little early, maybe about that time, 2010. And it was somewhere in Texas. It wasn't, I don't remember even the small town that it was in. And the CEO called me back, the founder. CEO founder called me back and he goes, I heard you had a question. What is it? And I started speaking. I said, what do you do there? He goes, well, you know, I'm the chief bottle washer. It's my business. And we talked for about an hour and a half and he explained to me the business. I said, who's your competition? How do you go about doing that? And I felt like I was Warren Buffett back in 1950s calling up people. And here this guy told me, 
Anyway, we made the recommendation, and the company was Atrion Corporation, A-T-R-I, and that company made small little things like, for example, the, um, the contact lens solution cases, uh, catheters, really small niche market. And at one point, the stock was up, I think, eight or ninefold, eight or ninefold, and it was there in plain sight. I said, do you have any analysts come out? And he goes, who the hell wants to come out to see us? We're too small. We're in a dusty place about an hour and a half from the main airport. No one bothers us, which made me so happy because nobody was looking at the stock. And it was about a two. No, it, it was a two hundred million dollar stock at the time. You see that quite a bit, and, and it's, I love finding companies like that that you can find that are growing, profitable, that dominate a small niche of the market, because it really vets management. Because it usually tells you that either they took market share from somebody else, or they created the market they're in. So either way, it kind of vets the management team that they're experienced, they, didn't, they know what they're doing. So I love to find those, those niche companies that dominate a small market. And I'm not, I don't need to find something that has a $10 billion addressable market. It can be a 50 or 100 million. And the reason I don't worry about it too much is what happens with every business is when you have customers that love you, they end up pulling you into other things where they're underserved. So yeah, yeah. It just, market ultimately ends up expanding. Yeah, it just it, that's it goes back to you know serving the customer, and the customer will direct you in what business to be in and how to get better at it. Because they they're not your customers; they are partners. They want to see you grow, and you want to see them grow. So it's a very symbiotic relationship. And I've always found that's the way the greatest businesses have grown, especially from your books. The the owner, CEO, C-suite people, management they see the customers as a partner with them. And where they're going to grow together. They're happy. I'm going to be happy. Yep. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. I, I, that's it. So, um, yeah, Ian, I want to tell you, man, thanks so much. I think that what you're doing is really valuable. You're providing uh, a little bit of sunshine into an area which is just rife with, with really hucksters. And you're separating, separating the wheat from the chafe. you got a bunch of smart people doing it. It's, I think, $500 or $495 you charge for your website to, uh, to go on there and find. But even if not, even if people don't join your website, I highly recommend your books, Intelligent Fanatics, uh, just learning how great CEOs become great CEOs and what makes them great CEOs. And just replicate that. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. I think the microcap ecosystem is an incredible place, whether you join the site or not. I don't care. I just want more people to know that it exists. It's a amazing place for the smallest student investor to get to have an advantage for once, uh, because it should be everybody's goal that you want to invest where you don't want to invest where the institutions are. You want to invest where they're going to go. Yeah, or where, you know, or where and, they can, or where they can't go now. It's, it's you know, yep. some of the, uh, some of these uh, don't even have a conference calls or earnings calls simply because no one cares about them. Yep, exactly. You know, so that's great. Ian, uh, continued success, man. Great. The site is microcapclub.com. You started it. It's just a really a great site for a lot of information. Your two books, Intelligent Fanatics, really go out and get them. And the second one is Intelligent Fanatics Project. I think that these should be required reading in business courses because they focus, business schools, and I've had some interns, they, they're great at making love to a spreadsheet. But talk about the qualitative parts of a business, they just don't get it because many of them have never run a business. And then you start reading about Sam Walton uh, lying down between the aisles in Sol Price's price club to measure the distance between the shelving. And Sol Price almost threw, he threw him out of there. But 
it's those simple things and you find those kinds of managed with the passion and, and the drive and the vision, it doesn't take much to, uh, you know, just latch onto them and just make money. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's my goal to find intelligent fanatics early and that's, that's what everybody should do too. You know, so it's, I'm glad you enjoyed the books and I, and I appreciate the opportunity. Great. Ian, thanks so much, man. It really was a pleasure having you and speaking with you today and I wish you continued success. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.